Yes, that is the amazing Bruce Bouillet. I'm Paul Hansen, your host, and you're listening to the 28th edition of Boss Tone Radio, and Bruce is our guest. This is Bruce rocking out underneath me. This is from his unspoken album. The song is called Hot Rails. Let's get back to talking to Bruce. Now, after Racer X, Paul formed Mr. Big with Billy Sheehan, and then you formed a band called The Scream, and you guys signed to Hollywood Records. Can you tell us about that band? Yeah, it was um, probably around 90 when we signed, I think. Racer X had broken up in 88. Uh-huh. Uh, unfortunately, at that point in my life, I'd had really bad hand problems. and Like, um, like tendinitis or something? Really bad in my um, fret hand, so uh, left hand. Is it wrist or fingers? It was actually in the palm and in my wrist. And it had gotten so bad that actually a couple of the very end of the Racer X shows, I actually had to fly back to, to Kentucky, so I missed a couple of them. Uh, you know, it was the whole typical getting injected with cortisone and stuff like that, which wasn't thrilling me that much. And <laughs> so at the time, I had to kind of make a decision mm-hmm. really based on how much I could play. So so around the time of the scream, that they, you can hear a shift in my plane. Oh, it's... It, from Racer X days to then. I just listened to Man in the Moon. Yes. That sounded so good. You were... Thank you. Playing laid back, you know, and, and on that song you played slide. Yeah, well, really, that's more of the background I had had kind of growing up around the area in the Midwest. Uh-huh. My father was country-oriented, and I had some really good guitar-playing friends. That One was from Chicago, a good friend of mine. He was a blues guy, so I definitely had a whole bunch of that growing up, and I kind of reverted back into that because it was the most comfortable thing to go back to. Yeah. That was a fun band. We actually toured a lot. We were one of the first to sign on Hollywood Records. It was just newly developed. The Scream album was produced by Eddie Kramer? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the oh, guy gosh. who did uh, Jimi oh. Hendrix. Zeppelin. And- Zeppelin, Beatles. He's like the most legendary producer, I think, of all time. Besides George George Martin, you know? Exactly. Well, he's right behind him, you know? And it's, uh, <laughs> wow. It was quite an experience. I mean, obviously, it was the first time that I had been involved in anything that was like a major deal. And the money that they had, because Hollywood Records was built out of the Walt Disney empire, so they had just tons of money, and, and they obviously were spending tons of it, and uh, you know, got to work with great people. Did Eddie Kramer ever tell stories about... Led Zeppelin or Jimi Hendrix? Well, the really interesting thing for me was is that I didn't know he was a, an amateur photographer. Ah. Oh. So all those sessions that he did, he also took photos inside oh, wow. the recording process. And he brought in two photo albums that were <laughs> five or six inches thick each. Oh, my God. I mean, it was just the holy grail of behind-the-scenes photos. I think since then he's put out a book now with some of the photos, but uh-huh. it was really interesting to hear him talk. And for me, I was a huge Hendrix fan too. Oh, uh, me too. And to be that close, hear firsthand from people that actually, I mean, you know, yeah. this guy was shaking the guy's hand. Yeah. You know, it was real interesting to hear the, the, the how the recording process really went down. And uh-huh. 
I got to hear some pretty obscure stuff that I think nobody's probably heard. Must have been really cool. It was it was great. So you guys toured, right? Can you tell us about that? We actually did. We toured a bunch. They had flown us around, and we did a bus tour. Just just myself and the singer at first did kind of a promotional tour for radio. And I think by the time the album actually came out, we had a really big jump start. I think 250 stations playing it. MTV picked it up. And uh, we definitely played a lot of shows. I think they flew us over to London. The funniest story is the night we played the Astoria Theater, uh, Nirvana was playing a small club down the road. Oh, wow. And we actually walked down to go see him because myself and the bass player, Juan Alberetti, Juan, yep. had heard about him. And uh, so it's like, uh, I want to go see these guys. You know, I heard they're really good. And I think we were pretty aware that there was going to be a big shift in music at that point. And so how were they? We, did, we couldn't get in. It was, it was sold out. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> hear it from the, out, you know, the outside a little bit. And I mean, you could just tell. Even if all that you were hearing was just the faint sound of some drums, you just knew that whoever was in there meant business. So You had just come from playing the huge Astoria. Yeah, that's a, that is a funny story. You go down to this little club and you can't yeah. get in. <laughs> It was yeah. it was interesting. It's really interesting to kind of look back on it and see. But John and I were very aware at that time too that you could feel it in the air. That you know what I think there's I think something's coming here. Something kind of needed to come around because it, there's just so much of the same thing. And then the whole grunge thing happened, and there was a the guitar chops weren't that important. It's funny, and you went that way because of your hand. You just. Um, I had no choice, really. Yeah. My hand was starting to blow out, and it was like, you know what? I, it eventually came to the point where I had to stop playing a few years later after that. During the scream, it was, you. did you switch to a Les Paul? Switched from Ibanez to Gibson, which to me was, it was hard to say no at that point. Okay, here's a couple excerpts from the scream's hit, The Man in the Moon. She never comes back, it'll be too soon I'm doing fine, just me After the scream, did you then form uh, DC-10? Yeah, formed that band DC-10. Uh, it was sort of fragmented members of the, of the scream after um, John Karabi went to Motley Crue. John Karabi, the singer, yeah. The, the really interesting thing about that album, we did one one album, which we had um, Abe Laboreal Jr. we had just met, and he was just coming out of Berkeley, I believe, at the time. So we had him on drums, and I, I think the best way to describe it was we had a rehearsal room, and we were practicing these songs for maybe two years with various drummers. Then Abe comes for a rehearsal, and we're like, yeah, this is going to be great. And we play, and 
all these people from around us that were rehearsing around us all of a sudden are looking in our door going like, <laughs> did you guys just move in here? What's going on? Yeah. And I couldn't stop laughing going like, wow. It was a real obvious thing. When, when, when you sat in with Abe, it was like, wow, this guy is just a beast, you know? A lot of people yeah. don't know that his, his dad, Abe LaBoreal, is one of the greatest bass players. So you know son was coming up with the, the, with the proper rearing, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, you know, now he's uh, the Paul McCartney's drummer for 11 years or so, 12 years. Yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't a surprise to me. It was really just that incredible to jam with him. Yeah, I don't think you can get a better gig in the music business than playing yeah, that's sort of <laughs> Paul the, McCartney's uh, band. That's sort of the grail gig up there. Yeah, <laughs> I interviewed Rusty Anderson, Paul McCartney's guitar player. I told him, if you took a gig with Led Zeppelin, it would be a step down. <laughs> <laughs> that guy's Gosh. an incredible player. On a side note, I saw some, some video footage of him playing not too long oh, ago. Just, like, wow. Bruce, over the years, you've become a producer and kind of a recording studio guy. I read that by 2001 you'd worked on 75, at least 75 albums? After DC-10, my, my hand has kind of run its course. So I built up a couple studios in L.A. and just started producing. I sort of turned my, uh, you know, all the stuff that I had learned toward that side of it. Really got to record some incredible people. I, I read that you um, worked with Buck Cherry. Yeah, right. Uh, and, I like the um, name Buck Cherry. It's just you switch the B and the C, and it's Chuck Berry. Yeah. <laughs> it's a pretty <laughs> clever name. And, and they were a really fun bunch of guys to work with. Uh, I did all the demos that, that ended up you know being their first album. And the interesting side note that most people don't know is I didn't know who they were at the time. And my, my buddy called me up and said, hey, man, you want to work with Ben Harper? Oh, wow. I'm like, what? I don't know. Damn straight I do. And, uh, and somehow or another, they had hooked up with Ben Harper. Buck Cherry. So Ben came in with, with those guys to help kind of get their songs tightened up and, you know, produce them overall some. And brought in all this, like, serious vintage gear, like, you know, real 50 Fender amps and just, like, old guitars and, and dobros. And, you know, every now and then the guy would sit down and start to play and it would just be mesmerizing, like, wow. Yeah. One of the nicest guys in the world to work with. So, obviously, I, they, they, they went on to do pretty well, so. Yeah, I remember meeting Ben Harper at a NAM show. Yeah, super, like, mellow, nice guy. Hey, Bruce, let's talk about gear. I saw a picture of your pedal board, and you've got a bunch of boss pedals. One of them's a, a chorus. Yeah, the blue box, yeah, the light blue one. Yeah, love that that, that pedal. The uh, got the two knobs on it. Oh, that's the really and, old one. Uh, that one, that one's straight off my high school pedal board. They just don't break. No, I mean they're they're for life. I had a couple other pieces. They became too much real estate for my pedal board. But I had some of the old chorus ensembles back in the day. I love those things. I saw a picture of a phaser in your pedal board too, like a PH two. Yeah, I probably over my span of playing. I probably can't count how many different ones I've ran across. I used to use the uh, the graphic EQ pedal a lot. Oh, I love that one. Great. You could crank that thing up, and it would just give you the perfect overdrive, too, if you needed an extra boost. I used to use the yellow OD-1, I think, is it? OD-1. I heard that's the one that Lindsey Buckingham used on those Fleetwood Mac solos. 
it doesn't really change your tone. It just kind of gives you more sustain. Yeah, that's interesting to know. I like his playing a lot. The DS one now, I did have one of the original ones that was Japan made. And it was interesting because I think 2007, uh, I got to team up with Paul to go on a G3 tour. Yeah, I remember I read that. That was, for me, was pretty phenomenal because, A, to me, it's like a holy grail tour for guitar. I was just coming off of 10 years of not playing. That with Joe Satriani or Steve Vai? Satriani and John Fertucci. And then you and Paul. Yeah. Uh, it was funny because halfway through the tour, I was kind of hanging out at sound checks, and you know, Joe would say, hey, you want to check out my... Because I'd be looking at his rig and seeing what he's using. And, um, hey, you want to play through it? It's like, sure. It was funny to see that he was... He had said that his whole run, he had used sort of clean tones on the amps, and the DS1 is his main huh. really sound. I thought that was just like an amazing idea to travel the whole world with one box in your amp and still be able to like have your tone wow. on any amp. Wow. The DS1 is such a popular pedal. Hey, I got to tell you a story. <laughs> in my studio, I once recorded Mike Stern, and I looked in his pedal board, and he had two DS1s. So I asked him, why do you have two DS1s? And he said, because if one breaks, then I have a spare. And then I asked, did one ever break? And he said, well, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's been like, he's had it for like 15 years or something, and but he just carries the spare in his pedal board. <laughs> well, you know, as I, I, I try to think back right now, I can't think of a time where I had one of them break. Yeah, they, I really can't. I can't think of... If one of them isn't in my collection, it's probably because I traded for a different one. So, <laughs> not, not because it's, it's broken, gone. I have a story about a DD2. And after I got a job working for Boss, I thought, oh, this is great. I can get my DD2 fixed because I remembered something was wrong with it. And uh, so I called down to get a, a, a number to send it, you know, back to Roland. And the, right. the repair guy said, what's wrong with it? So I got it out, plugged it in, and I couldn't find anything wrong with it. It still works perfect. <laughs> so I ended up not fixing it because it wasn't broken. It must have been maybe something else on my pedal board. <laughs> the classic case of, well, it was broken. I yeah. don't know what happened. <laughs> yeah. So, Bruce, you've been doing um, instrumental albums. Your hand back in shape again? Around 99... I had kind of kind of started working with Paul again on some of his albums, helping him produce and mix and whatnot. Uh-huh. Ended up doing a few stints in Nashville around the same time and had been producing a lot of bands, and, and a band had approached me to start playing with them, a really heavy underground band. And they were like, we know you play, dude. Like, well, I don't know. So I ended up taking a guitar and open-tuning it to, to open A. I started experimenting around with playing again, just with sort of like a one-finger approach. Uh -huh. And lo and behold, about, I don't know, two years later, um, after after kind of hooking up with these guys, we got signed to Electra. What what band is that? This was a band called um, Epidemic. Uh-huh. We ended up going out and, and doing, I think it was 2000, 2001, 2002, we released an album on Electra. And we opened up for a lot of people. Opened up a whole summer for Nickelback, I think. Oh, wow. Um, opened up for Jerry Cantrell. A lot of festivals with bands like Hatebreed or P.O.D. or Rob uh -huh. Zombie. 
and did that all playing with one finger. <laughs> it's kind of amazing. <laughs> and for some reason, after that, I switched my whole style of playing. I don't know why or how. I've been practicing, like actually playing back like I did when I was in Racer X on a little toy like ukulele guitar. Huh. Where the frets were small. And they were close together, so there wasn't these wide stretches I had to do to play. I could just kind of fiddle around on it. For some uh-huh. reason or another, it popped back to where I could play again, and I don't have the problems anymore. That's and awesome. I, I, all I can say is probably uh, due to stretching or huh. diet or uh, less stress. I, I don't know. I couldn't, put the, <laughs> I couldn't put my finger on it. It just came back, so I started wow. doing solo albums again. Uh-huh. Um, I did a... Uh, an album with this band called The Bottom Dwellers. Uh-huh. Do that, I had met this guy named Dave Foreman. Right. You guys created Flat Fifth Digital. Being there, like, the main kind of nucleus of that whole thing, and we, we write constantly together. He's a phenomenal player. He's played on so many people's albums. Really big on the R&B side. So, Bruce, do you have any final advice for um, guitarists that want to... You've had a long career. I would just say... You know, mm-hmm. probably just enjoy what you do and don't worry about what anybody else is doing. If you like it and it sounds good, then it is good. And and I think in hindsight, it really pays to, to go back and research as many different players as possible. Because there's a lot of really hidden gems out there, especially nowadays with YouTube. There's so many things uh, to find yeah. that we weren't necessarily privy to back in the day. I mean, we and couldn't see Uli Roth on YouTube like you could now. You just look him up. Exactly. I mean, back then, it was like you see a picture in a magazine and yeah. listen to the album, you know? And it was, yeah. So it's a different world now, and, and I think I would say try to play with as many different people as possible because music is such a, it's such a mysterious thing in that sense that you never know what, when, when you mix the chemistry of other people together, what you're going to get. And wow. sometimes you can even be so surprised, you know what I mean, just by being with somebody you never expected to, something like this to turn out. So play with lots of people. That's great advice. I, any last words about Boss? Well, I can say that I've, I've put in about 30 years now for playing, and I've had Boss on the pedal board back 30 years ago, and I've got Boss on the pedal board 30 years later now. I'm glad that uh, they've been there to, to add those extra effects and stuff that make guitar playing that much more fun. Thanks so much, Bruce, for letting me interview you here. Oh, no problem, dude. It's good hearing from you, man. Yeah. Awesome to hear from YouTubers. Take care of yourself. Well, likewise, and I'll talk to you soon. This is an excerpt from one of Bruce's songs called SFV from his Interventions solo album. So I just want to say thanks to Bruce Bouillet for coming on the show and talking about Boss and all his interesting exploits over the years. I'd like to thank you for using Boss gear, Boss pedals, metronomes, drum machines, recorders, killer multi-effects, and more. This is Paul Hansen. Until next time, I'll see you later.